Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show that's coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. An amazing, an amazing person for you all to meet. You know, the other day I was reminded when I listened to the acceptance speeches at the Oscars the other night, and I have watched the Oscars for a lot of years, but I was especially taken by the folks that won, the people that talked about being immigrants, the people that talked about living the American dream, the people that talked about levels of adversity they had gone through, the people they talked about breaking history, making history, you know, the people that talked about the we in all of us. And I was acutely reminded of John, my guest today, John Zingula, who's joining me here today, somebody that also has a story that talks about what is it like as many of our family members have been, to become young immigrants and journey to the American dream. Now, you may be watching the Oscars and you may have your opinion of that, but when you hear about a story of uh, someone who had to follow his heart, and I say had to, because sometimes when you're called forward, you can't help but follow that. But somebody who came to a place this place we call America. And coming here was able to help all of us understand a journey. And I think it is something that we perhaps have forgotten here in America. I think sometimes we forget how we got here, where we came from, what lands we came from. And I was also reminded by watching this Oscar event, how many films in the top were about people's journey in other countries. For example, Ireland, talking about that. You know, my parents, my adopted parents from Ireland. So what is it that's bringing us to the forefront to remind us and talk with John about utopia to the American dream? From utopia to the American dream. Listen about this. What does this mean? What is the good, the bad, and the ugly? Because you heard it the other night. You heard the stories of the good, you heard the bad, and you heard the ugly. But the reality of that can be told through a true story of John's life and can be told through passing on and moving and taking the legacies and bringing them forward because there is something important to understand and there's something seriously important to remember. John, it's great to have you. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I want to start because when we hear about from Utopia to American Dream, you know, there are so many things that we hear that are so upbeat, so positive, but very few people understand what that journey is really like. 
I want to ask you this question. I've been asking this question for 20 years. This is a phenomenal story. It's phenomenal awakening, and it really is a message for our time. But I would love to know from you, here you sit here as this fantastic author, director. I mean, there's so many things I could say about you. I just want to know from where you sit today, what are some of the challenges and obstacles you had to overcome to bring you to this very moment? Yes, well, I practically overcame everything that I left behind when I came to the United States. And uh, right now, I, 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 I am retired. I wrote a book, and I wrote my story uh, from childhood. From It starts at three years old and all the way through uh, the Second World War and the Russian occupation, which is very similar to the stories we hear today. As a matter of fact, uh, some of it heard at the Oscars you mentioned about. Yes. Uh, <laughs> it, it's amazing what's happening today, and uh, uh, I was uh, I was extremely lucky. Uh, uh, well, I should say, I should say, not necessarily lucky, but it's the United States of America, and back in Hungary in uh, before the revolution and. After the, during and after the war, uh, it was always said that America is heaven. And let me tell you something. I came, I, 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 I came and, and three, uh, four weeks later, I had a scholarship at Wabash College, Indiana. And when I came, uh, when I finished, I came to America, to uh, California, uh, uh, I, Within 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 four four or five months, I got parts in television. It's it's just so, it's just so yeah. amazing. I, I couldn't believe it. Yeah. And uh, uh, I I brought my brother after me. He uh, he came after me. Uh, uh, didn't didn't come together because uh, my mother said he's only a child. Don't bring him his problems and so forth. And he ended up in England. And uh, in a coal mine almost. But he, before he could go down to the coal mine, I brought him to California. Actually, I had a, a dean of foreign students at college who helped me do that. And then uh, we got together and uh, got into all sorts of businesses and things besides yeah. that. Yeah. There's something I want to talk to you about that really inspires what you just said. And we don't talk about this enough. You know, today when we talk about immigration, you know, it really is focused on a vision of immigration that's been going on since forever. Since forever this country was this country. Immigration, the way we're talking about it now, especially at the Mexican border, that has been going on way before we were even like 52 states, right? But there's something I think we've forgotten. And I want to ask you about it because you so beautifully write about it. My my parents, my family described to us children for decades what it was like coming in and seeing that beautiful, beautiful lady as the boat is coming in and they're seeing this beautiful lady in the water and you know, I am not doing justice as to the way they described it or the way they felt. What was that like for you? Uh, every time, every time this comes up, I write about it. I, I have tears in my eyes. Yep. Uh, uh, we were 2,000 of us on the boat. Uh, General 
Walker. It's a Navy transportation ship. And the captain was Hungarian in the Navy, U.S. Navy. And uh, he spoke to us on the on the on the speakers, and uh, uh, and when all sorts of bad weather, I I would advise to nobody sail around the Atlantic in February, this <laughs> <laughs> because it was horrible. And then and then, God bless it. Uh, about two days prior to arriving in New York, uh, sun. The sun, sun was shining. And we noticed that the boat was slowed down. And slowly, 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 come, about six o'clock in the morning, we saw something coming out of the water. The torch of the Statue of Liberty. And further and further and further until the whole statue was visible. And if you ever seen 2,000 people cry. Yep. Including me now, uh, it's it's just amazing, amazing, and and never, never, ever forget it. It it causes me every time I, this comes up. There's a couple of other things in the book that that uh, almost does the same thing, but this this stops it off. Yeah. And of course, after that, we started to see the New York Harbor and all of that. Yeah, it's just never for never to be forgotten. You know, I love the energy of this. And this is what I want us to remember. You know, you said it. My grandparents, you know, my my family, my parents, they could never talk about that. And we used to, and every holiday, they used to talk about it for as long as I can remember. And when they described it, each of them did describe it multiple languages at the at the dinner table. So, you know, you picked up something and some you didn't. But that was the, the way that they described it. My grandma used to say, hope came into my heart. She would say that hope came into my heart. Now, like you, uh, these are people that fled a country, not by their own choice. Uh, my family had uh, uh, a foothold in a place in Italy that became a lookout post uh, for Mussolini that, you know, we to protect against Mussolini. Uh, and even before that, and it's a small town, Vagliasoto, and it was a standing ground until they were conquered and everybody had to leave. So when grandma says hope in, hope in her heart, did you relate to that the same way, John? Oh, yes, yes. I, uh, uh, like I said, we always heard of the United States as a... As a uh, uh, the, uh, heaven mm -hmm. uh, and as actually uh when i got to california back then of course yeah. was still heaven yeah. we could talk about that now but uh but uh, uh when i got to the college the the christmas uh, first christmas season vacation i uh i went back to new york and went on top of the statue of liberty can you imagine that? Back then, you could go to do that. You could yeah. go. And it was, whew, you touched on, you touched on my heart now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you know, what I love about this, and so brilliantly how you've done this in the book, is what. here's the thing that I said the other day on air, and I'm going to say it to you. 
Somebody asked me a long time ago, what am I most afraid of? You know, Pat, you own a network. You've been hosting people's voices for two decades now. And what are you most afraid of? And, you know, I thought for a minute, because I'm not really afraid of much. I mean, that's another show we can do about that. (laughs) But I said to him, I said, you know, I'm afraid of us all forgetting. And they looked at me, John, and they said, well, what do you mean by forgetting? I'm afraid that we're going to forget the way my parents and grandparents felt when they came here. I'm afraid we're going to forget of the memories and the resilience that they built and they built in all of us. Um, I'm afraid we're going to forget that each of us has a soul and a heart. And just because we're immigrants, we may be different, but we're not less than. What about you, John? Well, I tell you, uh, I I went back uh, since uh, uh, about 15 years after the after arriving in 1956, I went back for the first time to Hungary and saw my parents. It was just amazing. And uh, and uh, I was arrested yep. uh, on the street because I, they had no right to do it, but uh, but uh, 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 they did it anyway and interrogated me for three hours. Not viciously, because they knew I was a U.S. citizen by then. And... Uh, uh, it was uh, it, it was just 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 amazing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I want to talk about this because you talk about the American dream, and I really want to. I want to spend some time with you on that. You know, I know for me, I grew up with parents and grandparents that so believed in this um, beyond anything that we can talk about in the show. But I was also struck by what my grandfather had to go through in hiding his heritage, and the only way I found out that that I'm of Brazilian descent is because of <laughs> Ancestry.com uh, and the internet. And, uh, and and my uncle kind of spilled the beans. I mean, once you start to get emails in Portuguese from relatives, you know, it's like, wait a minute. But still, even though he had to hide his heritage, he saw the American dream. How do you see the American dream today where you sit? Well, uh, um, I have seeing and and seeing the american dream as a result of the american dream right now i'm i'm 86 years old and so i've i've done i've done it all i've i've been an entrepreneur i i had 20 20 different uh, uh businesses and the last one was really successful uh, uh we uh, we had uh, solar energy business i started the business and my dream was to do steam from the sun. And, and it took three years and a lot of engineering and uh, the U.S. help, NREL, National, National Energy Laboratory. They had like a thousand uh, engineers there, all, all, all working with alternate energy. And we were able to, we were able to finally do uh, 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 steam and turn a turbine and have a <clears throat> have a modified uh, electric power plant and ter- made 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 electricity and and sold it to their a- actual uh, the existing close by existing uh, uh, electric companies. Wow! And this this is this thing is in uh, Nevada. Nevada we call it the Nevada Solar One, and and so that gave me. A, a true, how shall I say, it, retirement. 
<laughs> yeah, <laughs> of course it did. Congratulations. <laughs> but, uh, but but now I'm working with the group at the book. We tried to do it. As a matter of fact, you know, I was going to mention to you that the, uh, the, the book is being translated as we speak in Hungarian. Uh, the uh, university, uh, University of Debrecen, uh, it's the second largest city. They have thirty-five thousand students, and they asked me if they could translate it. They asked me if I could, if they could produce it and translate. It. After I got off the floor, <laughs> yeah, of course, right? What an honor! <laughs> oh yes, yes, mm. yes. Yeah. And I just finished high school there, so it wasn't because I was a uni university student. Yeah, some time ago or not. But but they said that the reason they really like the book is because uh, uh, it a lot of books have been written about the 1956 revolution against the Russians and a lot of newspaper articles and magazines and so forth. But nobody has written a book that starts at three years old. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and goes all the way through two years ago in the United States. <laughs> yeah. But that's what I was talking about, John. I was talking about the fact that, you, you know, this book in particular, and I hope they do grab the uh, movie rights to it, you know, from Utopia to American Dream. For all of you out there, this is available to all of you. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. But what I love about it is exactly what you said. And, and what I love about what they're going to do with it is, see, they know the importance of remembering this story. See, that's one of the things that when I was asked the question, I most fear. When people don't believe the Holocaust, for example, was real, we're in trouble. When we don't remember that what happened to you is happening now, right? Yeah. And, and what it takes to stop it. I was struck by the movie, the film the other night that won the award, um, the international film. What got me in my heart was when they read from the, the two prisoners that were in a Russian jail. Yes. Putting yes. it mildly. Short because, film, yeah, because yeah, we know that those two people, I don't even think they're alive today. But yeah. that's the bold courage, and that's what you're doing here. You're bringing this bold courage to remind us: please don't take this for granted. This yeah. is our this is our right, right, John? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, I remember in in relation to that is that when when I was like maybe four, uh, we went to we were going to my mother and father we were going to church, and we we came by a Catholic church. Uh, uh, we, we belong to the Reformed Church, and they were on the on the front of the church. There were these black uniformed people, and were hitting people, other people who were not in uniform. Well, later I find out that they were they were uh, Jewish captured captures, and they were hitting them to work harder, cleaning up the churchyard. I never forget that. I, I I write a little bit about this in the book, and uh, and so it's 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 horrible. It's horrible what's going on, even now with uh, well with Ukraine. Yeah, you know, I got to interview the youngest member of parliament from the <laughs> from the Ukraine, um, and I'm hoping to interview him again. You see, when we take humanity and make it political, we're all in trouble. Yes. You're, you yeah. would have been in trouble coming in. I would have been in trouble. My family been in trouble. You know, when we start to make humanity, um, 
a political agenda. And that's what's happening now in a couple of places. But you yeah. see, your story goes beyond that. You know, your story and the reason that it's so important to remember your journey and your story is because it's not just about hope. It's hope. And then it's the action that you took to manifest the life of your dreams, isn't it? Right, right. Absolutely. Absolutely. I was, I was, I couldn't succeed in Hungary uh, under communism. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I applied for the uh, Film and Theatre Arts University and yeah. I, I, I was accepted. It was three, three tests and I was accepted at each one and asked to come back for the next one. And then all of a sudden, uh, before September, I got a letter that I wasn't politically, uh, 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 I, I just didn't fit. My father. Yeah, it's was, called politically uh, correct. <laughs> I even swallowed that word. But uh, my uh, my father was not a party member, so uh, every most everybody that got into the university at that time were party members. Yeah. Yeah. It's that's how it went. Also in high school, the same thing happened yeah. to me in high school, the beginning of high school. I was going to actually going to a uh, 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 engineering high school, technical, it's called engineering mm -hmm. technical high school. And uh, uh, by the time I applied, it was full. Yeah. 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 See, this is the story that we need to keep telling people. It's a story we heard at the Oscars the other day. And we heard it loud and clear. We heard the story of never giving up, never lose faith in the American dream. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I am one of the believers that we are at a, uh, we do not have equity of choices here in this country. Still, we don't. Um, we know that. Um, and sometimes it's harder than others. Um, but your story is going to remind us of what it's like and then let's let's look at the world today because it's really mimicking where we are today with Russia and Ukraine that's right. uh, and other places. But you're telling us a story that says this is the American dream. This is something to be proud of. There's yeah. something here for everybody in the world of possibilities. But what will you do to make it happen? And that's what you're helping us with, John. So thank you so much. That's right. May I say to you that uh, sure. we, just, we just got a website talking Please. about the Oscar dream a story. Uh, it is uh, dreamusa.net. Dreamusa.net. Thank you. Because weren't you, I cried. I mean, I watched the Oscars, but I tell you, I was telling my friend, Linda, who scheduled this interview. I said, Linda, I cried for 40 minutes. I couldn't stop crying. Yeah. And I just, at one point I, I, could, I, I couldn't catch my breath. Yes, he was this 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 little guy from Vietnam. He yes, was so excited. I thought he's going to rip open and walk out of his skin. He was just elated. It was, and then the moment when Harrison Ford was on stage with him, yeah, yeah. it was perfect. The other part of that was so touching is to have Jamie Lee Curtis couched yes. in between of the in between them. Yes, because she could not have one. This is my two cents now. She could not have won that if she was not fully engaged with the compassion and the connection of Michelle Yeoh and all of the other actors. You understand, Jamie Lee Curtis was like a fish out of water right there, yeah. and she wasn't. She was so embodied in that journey and that pathway. When I looked at that, I just thought, wow, what would happen if we could all be that way?
Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, she's half Hungarian. <laughs> hey, I got to tell you, this news that my grandfather was born in Brazil and was a farmer, I'm still trying to get used to that. That was not something I only found out right before my uncle died. It was the best kept secret <laughs> that you could possibly have. And I never got to understand why, except my uncle alluded to the fact that my grandma was from this place in Italy uh -huh. and there was no way on earth that she would ever get permission to marry a man that was a farmer in Brazil. <laughs> so how should he get to Brazil? Uh, oh my, my grandfather was born in Brazil and then he left. And when he left, he changed his name. He changed the end valve of his name to an A. Yeah. <laughs> and then came to the United States Italian. Yeah. <laughs> but I now now I I then realized why I never heard a word of Italian from his mouth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of that happened back in the old days. It yeah, is. It is. All over the world. But you know, here's where we are today. All of us can track our ancestry, right? We can yeah. track our legacy. We have now tools to go back. And I only found out by a fluke. My friend is a genealogist, and she was sharing her skill. And she wanted to do my dad's side of the family. I said, no, don't do that. Everybody's talking my dad's side of the family. I know we got people. I said, my, I didn't know my grandfather had a brother who went down to Brazil. So everybody's in Brazil. <laughs> so I said, do my mom's side. And on a big screen in front of all my friends, like we were having a little party, she does my grandfather. And it, there he is, his name, birth certificate on the screen. And she yeah. says, is this, this is your, is this Tom, your grandfather married Mary? I said, absolutely. <laughs> and he was born in Brazil, right? He was a farmer. So like, are you Brazilian? And I'm telling you, I'm still trying to get used to that idea. But you know what? We're all human beings, aren't we, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much. Thank you for today. Very yeah. exciting. Yeah. Please give out your website. Tell people how you we can get a copy of the book. Also tell them about the Oscar website again. Please do that. And thank you so much, John. It is, uh, again, uh, dreamusa.net. And uh, the book is available on Amazon. Okay. One last question. What's your personal message? What would you like to leave us with today? Oh, God. Talking about my dream, I would love to make this book a movie. I would love for you to do that. Yes. Yeah. I, I, I made a living as an actor for 15 years in Hollywood. So, But I never, I never could get a... Uh, a lead in a series because that was that was back then that was a stepping stone to films yeah anyway but thank you so much thank you john thank you so much i want to thank all of you fascinating story an incredible book and a reminder of what the american dream is hope in action is and what really is in the hearts of people that step here on this land and understand the opportunity and yeah. someday that opportunity will be for all no matter what you look like, no matter where you come from, no matter what you practice religiously or spiritually, and no matter what the color of your skin is. Thank you for tuning us in and turning us on. TransformationTalkRadio.com Hey, everybody. Welcome. 
I want to start out by saying this. Now, many of you have heard me talk about my mom. Um, you, some of you have heard me refer to her as my stepmom. But this is a woman that shaped, sculpted, crafted, helped me become the woman I am today, also helped me stop stuttering um, by giving me viola lessons. But we have a very special guest here, Jay, Jay Margolis. But before I introduce Jay, best-selling author, New York Times best-selling author, I want to say this. You know, my mom taught me everything about optimism. Of course, that's why when, when I started the network, I started a positive network, right? All positive, all talk, positive talk. Mm -hmm. My mom was that until one week she wasn't. And the week she wasn't was the week after the death of Marilyn Monroe. Now, here's what I want to say. I don't know what generation you're from. It doesn't matter. It didn't matter to Elton John. It certainly didn't matter that even in the Oscars this year, one of the least likely, according to people, actresses is nominated for an Oscar. And I wonder whose role she played. Years later, here we are today, and the conversation about a woman that stunned a nation, captivated a global audience, is still an important conversation. And that's what Jay is about. Today, I want to introduce you to someone um, that has stepped out in the world. He's going to tell you a little bit about himself. We're going to we're hear about things. But, but what about Marilyn Monroe? My Meryl. Marilyn Monroe, Ronald Reagan, Hollywood and me. I love that. I love saying it. <laughs> I love the energy of it. And I can't wait to I can't wait to get the vibe of it. Jay, it's great to have you. Oh, thank you for having me, Doctor. Yeah. Listen, congratulations. New York Times bestseller. Congratulations again. Um my mom stayed in bed for a week. Never in a million years. This is a woman that had her first child at 12 and her second child at 13. Well, when Marilyn Monroe passed, she stayed in bed for a week. Now, you're going to tell me why that is, because the world probably did the same. But for your life, you were touched in such a very special way. You know, you were touched in a way that most people can't even imagine, except maybe if you were my mom. Isn't that isn't that quite a gift? Yes. You know, it's it's fascinating that a lot of people believe that she had committed suicide because a lot of the police reports, the LAPD were putting out reports that she had committed suicide or it was an accidental death even before the autopsy was performed. So, you know, that's a little bit weird. And um, the truth is that she was murdered, but we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, but this book is more about like wh who Marilyn Monroe was as a person. And a lot of the other books have just not simply touched on this. And so you don't get an idea of who she really was. No, I will tell you this. My mom didn't buy it for a minute. Not a minute, not a second. Didn't buy it. And you know, we're starting, aren't we? Okay, this is probably another show you're going to have to do with me. But we <laughs> are starting to get information now. We're starting to get information about people like Malcolm X. You know, we're starting to find out, uh, uh, okay, you know, was there a way to 
how should I say it, systematically. Take people like Marilyn or other people and create a story that's so fictional that almost the population believed them at the time, right? Because people believed it at the time, unless you were my mom, right? Right. I'm, I mean, you know, they, they uh, see people who are close to Marilyn, they all believe that Marilyn was murdered. Joe DiMaggio, who was going to remarry Marilyn on August 8th, which turned out to be her funeral date. And um, Jane Russell believed that Marilyn was murdered. She told me that when I interviewed her in 2010. And uh, Debbie Reynolds believed that Marilyn was murdered and thought that it had to do with the Kennedy brothers. Um, you know, uh, Terry's grandmother, who uh, Terry's my co-author, her grandmother, Nana, who Marilyn um, was very close to. Uh, Nana was like a mother to Marilyn for 14 years. Uh, you know, she didn't believe that Marilyn committed suicide. And because she was so happy, you know, the day before she had a she was bragging about her Life magazine article with Richard Merriman that had come out on August 3rd, one day before she died. And she's calling every one of her friends up, including Terry's grandmother, and saying, I'm so happy. Look at this wonderful article that Richard Merriman did of me. It's all me and my own words, you know, and she's just like elated. And I mean, this is not a woman who's going to commit suicide. She had been rehired from her studio, yep. Century Fox, with a two picture, $1 million deal. You know, when you get that kind of deal, I don't think you're on the brink of committing suicide, mm -hmm. especially since you're going to remarry your second husband, Joe DiMaggio. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look. It was hard for people to imagine it no matter what. But I want to ask you this question. This mm -hmm. is up close and personal for you. Yes. You know, it is a book, but it's a book about a, a personal relationship that hit your heart. See, let's get to the heart for a minute, because there are people that might say, well, OK, what would what would what would really motivate somebody to write a book? Let me just tell you something. I think we have to start to eliminate the secrets. And I, I am so thrilled you did. I'm so thrilled you did. I really am. Thank because you. it doesn't do anybody any good not to talk about personal connections, heart-to-heart -heart connections, and tell a story that people want to hear. That had to be a motivation for you. Yeah. To share that heart-to-heart -heart realism of your perspective. And what I did was I contacted one of Marilyn's closest friends, George Barris. He was the last professional photographer oh. in Maryland. And uh, he told me, he said, I always believe Marilyn, Marilyn was murdered. Because when he looked uh, you know, at this whole scenario, the fact that Marilyn wanted him to come from New York to California, first thing Monday morning, she gets killed on Saturday. They're talking on Friday. It's the very next day she gets, you know, killed or she dies in, in this instance, um, you know, and nobody knew what happened. But, you know, he was strongly suspecting that she had been murdered. And so, you know, she said, promise me, George, you'll come out on Monday morning. And so he says, well, why did she promise so so much to for me to come out there if she's, you know, just going to go kill herself? He said he never believed it for a minute. Yeah. And, you know, we we learned a lot about uh, suicide these days. We learned a lot about the uh, antecedents to suicide, the signs of suicides and everything that you're talking about. And in the book does not indicate that, you right. know, it really doesn't. It's it's not the story that's believable in the day and age we live in. Um, look, the book includes Marilyn, but a couple of other folks, too. Right. Right. Ronald Reagan and yeah. Jane Lyman, <laughs> a few others. <laughs> And so I can. But it made sense to me. I guess to some people, it's like, did you? Why did you add these other people? But it kind of makes sense to me, and in a lot of different ways. 
Tell me what was it again that you saw this vision to be able to present these amazing stories? Well, a lot of people, you know, when I was first uh, working with Terry on this book, they said, well, maybe you should just focus on Maryland, you know, because a lot of people like to read Maryland books. And I said, well, then we'd be skipping over a lot of Terry's history. You see, because Terry knew uh, Maryland from 1948 when Terry was six years old. And uh, she had Marilyn Monroe as her first babysitter, first and only babysitter. And so when Terry was 11, you know, she had uh, her father, Fred Carger, had married Jane Wyman, yeah. who had just won an Academy Award for Johnny Belinda. And she had been recently divorced from Ronald Reagan. So Michael and Maureen Reagan became Terry's stepbrother and stepsister. So at 11 years old and Maureen's 11 and Michael's seven, you know, they all are, you know, new stepbrothers and stepsisters. Yeah. Michael and uh, Terry playing gin rummy every morning. They're taking (laughs) swimming classes together. They're chasing away tour buses in front of Jane Wyman's house. They're putting, uh, you know, cheeseburgers and antique coffee grinders of Jane Wyman, who got very upset and made them clean it up. (laughs) I mean, they had a lot of fun together, mischievous fun. And since they were children at the time, and uh, Michael wrote a foreword for the book. And at first, Terry didn't want to write it. She told me, she says, I don't know. I don't want people thinking I'm trying to profit off of knowing Marilyn Monroe. And and so, but and Michael says, well, you want to kind of set the record straight because there's yeah. so much negative nonsense written about Marilyn. Maybe you want to show people who she really was. And you're the only person that can do that. And you might as well set the record straight. And so uh, had I never approached Terry because I was just interviewing her for the murder of Marilyn Monroe case closed, my previous book, which became a New York Times bestseller, you know, she would have never written this book. <laughs> yeah, I, I have to tell you, I'm so glad you did for a lot of reasons. Um, I come from uh, a family that kept a, su- a secret of suicide in my family, my mom. And I know what it's like to have secrets. I know what it's like not to know the story. And I didn't have you. But I had a stepmom that kept my mom's letters uh, that she wrote to my dad. And after my dad passed, my stepmom had pulled them out of the garbage and gave them to me. You see, there are missing pieces for people. And whether it's Marilyn Monroe, what you're doing is you're saying to folks, look at these people. Let's take a closer look at them. Let's put aside what you may or may not have thought happened. Because there's some common sense involved in this that doesn't make sense. Just a bit of what you said, right? You go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so basically, you know, a lot of people could say, well, you know, maybe Marilyn could have committed suicide, you know. But in this circumstance, no. And the reason is because the autopsy report, if you go pay $120, go to the coroner's office, go get it. You see an empty stomach and there's um, no refractal crystals from either the sleeping pills of nebutal or chloral hydrate mm-hmm. and she's supposed to have taken 64 pills the coroner mm-hmm. theodore curfew went in front of uh, los angeles the head coroner um not the guy who did the autopsy but the head coroner of los angeles and uh, theodore curfew said well it looks like she took 47 nebutals and, and a large amount of chloral hydrate we've calculated the um according to the toxicology reports it would be equivalent to about 17 chlorohydrates and about 47 nebutals that's 64 pills now why is there not one undissolved capsule in her stomach it's because as dr sydney weinberg who was a coroner of suffolk county new york said it's because she did not orally ingest the drugs that killed her yet she had enough drugs in her blood according to toxicology reports to kill three people yeah yeah 
You see, you can't ignore that in this day and age. You know, once upon a time, you know, when all this was going on, I don't think the people that had it all going on ever thought that we'd have the level of communication and media we have now, that we could find out information, that the average person would be able to hear what you just said and completely understand it and say, really? But this is so important to tell this side of the story. You know, I've often thought um, growing up, I was a total Janis Joplin groupie, total. I mean, growing up, I had my people, right? Right. Never understood her death. And, And the moments, like when it happened, was supposedly another high point of her life. And so for those of us, over time, we didn't have you. I hope my greatest wish would be for perhaps, uh, hopefully, there's some of that uh, hair left over that the pallbearer of Marilyn, Alan Abbott, took off of Marilyn's head. Um, you know, it was thrown into a wastebasket in order to make a suture in the back of her neck to be presentable for the funeral because there's a lot of swelling back here. And what has happened since then is the DNA has been taken from that hair to determine that Charles Stanley Gifford really was her father. That was a big mystery for a lot of years, even though she knew that that was her father. Yeah. You know, the DNA had proved it. You could also use that hair, since it was taken after her death, to prove that there were any paralyzing poisons that were not mentioned in the autopsy to say, yes, this was a homicide and make that not an argument anymore. And uh, see, the thing is, is that this woman, there was an ambulance called to her house by the housekeeper. They called, she called Schaefer Ambulance. Mrs. Eunice Murray called Schaefer Ambulance, according to her son-in-law, who was a handyman, Norman Jeffries. He said to Donald Wolf, the first thing that Mrs. Murray did when she found her naked, um, face down, leaning on the phone in the guest cottage, and they had moved her to the main bedroom later. Um, they, they, uh, she was unconscious, took the phone from her, called Schaefer Ambulance. I spoke with three Schaefer Ambulance attendants, Eduardo Villalobos, Carl Balanzi, who was a former vice president. And also I spoke with Ruth Tarnowski. They all said that Joe Tarnowski took that call that night, that there was a call coming from Marilyn's house. Wow. And so the next thing that happens is that, um, you know, Villa Lobo says, I took the call first, but I'm over at Beverly and Western. So I couldn't have gone there if I'm going 100 miles an hour. That's 15 minutes away. So the, he dis- dispatched it back to James Hall and Murray Leibowitz, who ended up going there. They put a... Um, they, they uh, the first thing they did was they 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 saw Pat Newcomb, who was uh, Marilyn's publicist. This woman who's screaming. She says she's in there. I think she's dead. I think she's dead. And they're pointing inside the guest cottage. And Marilyn's face up this time instead of face down with no blanket or sheet wow. um with her. So somebody had moved her body face up between the time the ambulance got there. And James Hall says, "What's wrong with her?" And Pat Newcomb says, "I think she took some pills." And so uh, James Hall goes to smell Marilyn's mouth. No indication of vomit. No indication of odor of, of drugs or odor of pear, which is the fruity smell, a pear smell from the chlorohydrate. So he knew that she couldn't have broken down the pills or she couldn't have drinking a glass of water, just do this, or she couldn't have taken the pills orally, nothing oral in this instance. And so it made her face is turning blue. So they put a resuscitator on her. And then all of a sudden, you know, her color's coming back. And then this, this doctor comes in and says, I'm her doctor, give her positive pressure. But James Hall later identified him as Maryland psychiatrist, Dr. Ralph Greenson. And so he's, he, he takes out this uh, hypodermic syringe with the heart needle already affixed to it. He fills it with a brownish fluid and then he injects it into her heart. And then he says, I'm going to pronounce her dead. You can leave. At first, they thought it was adrenaline, but they always notate it was a brownish fluid. And as you and that's I know, not, that's not, not adrenaline. adrenaline. No, yeah, it's no. pentobarbital liquid. Yeah. 
Yeah. And so basically when you don't dilute a solution before you inject the patient, you will kill him with about a minute. And that's exactly what Hall said happened. And uh, Leibowitz has since confirmed Hall's account. So you got these mm-hmm. two ambulance attendants saying that you know, Greenson murdered her. And then you have Peter Lawford, who actually corroborates. This is a brother-in-law of Robert Kennedy. Right. And so what he says, now check this out. He says, Marilyn has got to be silenced, Bobby told Greenson, or words to that effect. Greenson had thus been set up by Bobby to take care of Marilyn. Then they say, well, how do you take care of Marilyn? The two attendants say with the heart needle. Now people say, well, why did Bobby Kennedy get Greenson to do this? Because Bobby knew that first thing Monday morning, we're talking about Saturday, um, you know, she's going to go public with this press conference exposing Jack and Bobby Kennedy. But then yep. Bobby Kennedy said to Greenson, hey, look, Greenson, she's going to go public with you, too, which was the lie. See, the, it was true that they were having an affair, Greenson and Marilyn. But Bobby tricked Greenson into thinking that Greenson's affair would be exposed when it was only going to be Bobby and Jack. So yeah. Bobby used Greenson to get rid of Marilyn. Yeah. And on top of all this, seven miles from the crime scene, 20 minutes after Greenson injected her at Olympic and Robertson Boulevard, you got detective lynn franklin from the beverly hills police department he pulls over a drunk peter lawford with his headlights off and he's in a, a beige continental lincoln continental sedan and he's going 75 miles an hour and he's and the guy says pete what are you doing you're going like 75 miles an hour and and, and peter lawford says i got to get the attorney general over here back to um, san francisco to get him out of town you know, to fly him out of town. And he says, well, you're going in the wrong direction. You're heading towards downtown Los Angeles. And Bobby Kennedy says to Peter Lawford, he says, I told you, stupid. <laughs> he said, get the wrong directions. And so uh, he says, who's this guy in the front seat? And, and uh, Peter Lawford says, oh, that's a doctor. He's riding along with us. And it turns out that through funeral footage of Marilyn's funeral, um, you know, they found out uh, uh, Franklin said that's I, I later identified that guy as Dr. Greenson. Mm. You got the killer in the front seat. You got Peter Lawford, who said Greenson had thus been set up by Bobby to take care of Marilyn. You got Bobby Kennedy in the back seat, seven miles from the crime scene, 20 minutes after it happened. They're caught red handed. That's it. Game over. Yeah. yeah. See, yeah. this is this is why this is so important. I I, I love the times we live in. Uh, people are very conflicted about the times we live in and the digital world we live in. Um, I think information, I think information, knowledge, I think that's where the power comes from. Um, You know, it was so interesting how little information was given during this time. But people, people that knew intuitively or felt intuitively Marilyn Monroe never bought it. My mom never bought it. Um, right. Other people, more movies. Are they going to make a movie out of this? I, I wish they would. You know, I wish they, they would. They're focusing on the mafia thing, but the fact that Greenson did it, and you got the two attendants and Peter Lawford. You see, you got five eyewitnesses. You got the two attendants, James Hall and Marie Leibowitz from Shaper Ambulance. You got the brother-in-law of Robert Kennedy, Peter Lawford. See, James Hall said that as Greenson injected her in the heart. Who comes into the guest cottage but Peter Lawford and Sergeant Marvin Ionone, who's a 29-year-old sergeant who used to work for the Kennedys. And yeah. so, you know, the, um, the reason that James Hall knew that Ionone was the officer is he's wearing his blue uniform, his little name tag on there. He says that's Ionone's, you know, his name is on there. And so uh, then he said that the first person they dealt with was Pat Newcomb, which turns out to be Marilyn's publicist. And at that time, he says, I didn't know what a publicist was, you know, but, you know, he's just, a, uh, you know, I think he was like 21 years yeah. old. 
with a, a wife and a kid on the way. And he didn't want to interrupt the doctor because you don't interrupt when the guy says, I'm a medical doctor. You don't interrupt them when they start to pull out a bag and do their own thing. Yes, That's back what, then, you, you know, never did. I mean, job. when a doctor walked in a room, at the day and age we're talking about here, Jay, you yeah. know, that time and day and age, never, with the doctor said, get out of the room, everybody got out of the room. Um, how do, let's just tell folks, how do people get the book? I mean, let's tell people where they can get access to this information, the book, okay. other things. Tell them how they can do that. What's the best way? The Amazon.com, uh, BarnesandNobles.com, uh, any major bookseller. And uh, also I have an Instagram called Marilyn Murdered. Uh, that's an ED at the end after murder. And basically I have uh, 11,000 followers. Uh, Boy George, the singer, follows me. And uh, you could find out new information. I post clips from all my interviews on there. Mm -hmm. I've done uh, 17 interviews for this book so far. Um, only in Terry and my book, um, only in my book with Terry, do we have a CIA document. It is dated one day before Marilyn dies, where she says she's going to hold a press conference. She's going to, uh, you know, see what the newspapers are going to do about her mm -hmm. diary of secrets. She, put, you know, they put in quotes. They get this from the wiretaps of Bobby Kennedy and Marilyn, and they're and she's also going to expose this the secret plot by the president to kill Castro. Mm -hmm. So they can't have her running around exposing national security secrets. It's beyond the affairs, which would have been a major scandal by itself but then to go say oh i'm going to tell everybody about your secret plot to kill you know castro that's a pretty big deal the bases in cuba they can't have that yeah so, i mean what we're learning about the what we're learning about those times and scandal is a great word there's no other word for it um but we're learning so much we're learning so much about a body of government that literally by a snap of a finger can eliminate an activist, can eliminate. And I think we're also finding now that it's more believable because we've seen more. You know, there's more that we've seen. There, there's more that to be revealed. But it this story. Of, uh, wag the dog a little bit. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> but you see, this story in particular is a story that people want to hear. Why? Because there are people all over the world. There are multi-generational people. I mean, there are. I mean, if you look at the multi-generational people that are so drawn to this, think about it. Out of all the movies and the actors and the actresses that could have been nominated for an Oscar, there were a ton. There are a ton of people. No one ever thought the role of Marilyn Monroe would be the nominee. Now ask yourself this question. Right. <laughs> this is so right here and right here for everybody. I must say that um, there have been two actresses, Anna Disarmas and uh, Michelle Williams, who have been nominated for an Oscar for playing Marilyn. Yep. And I just, uh, this, this blonde movie is, don't get fooled by this one. It's a fictional film that was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, and that was yep. the year they didn't give any of the three entrants, you know, um, or the nominees. They didn't give any of the three nominees the Pulitzer Prize. And um, it's, it's a terrible film. It does not represent who Marilyn was. Not at all. Not at all. It's a not terrible, the way we remember it. 
ugly film. In fact, the director, Andrew Dominic, said the following. He said, if I'm going to make a movie about Marilyn Monroe, I want to see the NC-17 version. So he's basically saying he wants to make a pornographic movie. And that's just not who Marilyn was. You know, she was beyond that. She was a very intelligent woman who is not represented at all in that film, except that the name that's printed there to Marilyn Monroe, and that's it. But for me, it's very disappointing. Yes. That's not the Marilyn that my mom and so millions, millions of people, millions of people worldwide cried. Elton John had to write a song. I mean, so many people, this woman touched the heart. But you are honoring. You see, you're bringing the truth, and the truth has to be recognized and honored. I hope you keep going. I hope you get somebody. I mean, I, when I was reading this, I was like, oh, my God, this would let, let if Oliver Stone gets a hold of this. You know, my brain was right. I was like, yeah. okay, wait a minute. He did this one. Then he did this one. Oh, okay. Well, okay. Guess what? I'm actually going to do the Robert Kennedy assassination next. I have two books on that. One book, I'm doing it by myself, in which I name who really killed Robert Kennedy. I have eyewitnesses who actually saw a gunman who was not Sirhan Sirhan, a third shooter, in addition to the second shooter who was uh, the security guard. They can name his name because he's dead. His name is Stan Eugene Caesar. He, he um, shot him twice to the right armpit with non-lethal shots. Then this third shooter came in behind mm-hmm. the security guard Caesar and, and Kennedy and shot him in the head. And so the real killer will be named in my book, uh, you know, about the Robert Kennedy assassination. I'm also working on another book about the Robert Kennedy assassination called I Shot RFK. I'm working with Scott Enyart, and he's a wow. photographer. So it's a pun, you know, I shot RFK. Like yeah, I, I got it. <laughs> so uh, he was 15 at the time of the shooting. And this woman named Joan Barr said to the police and said, hey, that kid was taking pictures, you know, while Kennedy was being shot. And so the police immediately went after him like a heat-seeking missile and took his uh, film away. And he had all these photographs inside the pantry. In fact, we have a picture of him standing on the pantry with his camera like this. You know, so he was there, even though the police are trying to say he wasn't. We have a picture of him in the pantry. Yeah. And so it's it's crazy, you know, how all this it, happened. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's not right. Let's just let's just take a moment and go back in time. Jay, go yeah. with me for a minute, okay. because if you go back in time. Right. Beautiful job, Jay. Thank you. I can't thank you enough. What's next for you? I know you gave us a little snippet on next, but you're going to try to get a film. Can we get a can we see if we can get a film done here? I'm I'm definitely uh, trying. And, um, you know, this thing with Scott Enyard is really interesting because he sued the city of Los Angeles in 1996 to get his uh, film back. And uh, he won the case against uh, Lewis Skip Miller, who is the one that got the uh, Rodney King, uh, a police look. And he also uh, got the, um, you know, um, um, you got these the people who were um well i mean the whole rodney king thing was a big you know case where th- this racial issue had divided the whole nation and so lewis uh, skip miller was was no good guy this was the first case that he actually lost you know he had never lost a case until this time and so it was interesting how you know, Scott is going up. It's kind of like a, a the underdog. He's going up against this big thing, and he wins this case against the city of Los Angeles. They can't afford to lose this case. They put millions of dollars fighting against Scott Enyer, a 15-year-old kid at that yeah. time. You know, and they're trying to say he didn't see what he saw. And, 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 you know, we have the picture of him in the pantry. We got the yeah. woman 
we actually had the woman's police report, Joan Barr, and she just hours after the shooting went on CBS radio and said, this kid got his, you know, footage taken from him by the police. His camera was taken away and everything. You can hear a 15 year old Scott in documentaries and mm-hmm. Robert Kennedy uh, where he says, you know, that, that they took away, uh, or excuse me, not that they took away. Um, he's telling the police officers, he said, I stood on the steam table. I was taking pictures and they said, Oh, well, Robert Kennedy was shot. And he says, yes, as he was being shot. Yeah. And so yeah. Anybody who wants to try to doubt his story, there's just too much to There's back too much. Up. There's too much. And this is what I was trying to say to you before. Anything that went on during that era, no one ever had any insight at all that fast forward to where we are today and the availability of information, documents, people, eyewitnesses would be able to come forward and bring forth documents and evidence. See, if you were back there, right, right. you thought you were in power you thought you were saved. You thought what happened and went went on was never going to happen, was never going to come to the public. Nobody will ever know. No one could have predicted where we are today from a media and an information point of view. But you see, we don't have time to put it together like you did. That's That's what I'm trying to say. I can only imagine the time and effort it went into this. That's why okay. I said to you when we started, this has to be a passion and a life calling for you. Yes, because the way you guys did this is amazing. Jay, thank you so much for everything. Again, books available. Tell people where to get it. Thank you, Dr. Pat. Um, I'm, we can get it at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can also go to my Instagram, Marilyn Murdered. That's uh, murder with an ED at the end. And uh, you can uh, follow me and uh, have updates. I'll put my clips from every new interview that I have so you can listen to my past interviews. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. You bet. Jay Margolis, everybody. I'm Dr. Pat. Waiting for the movie. We'll be right back.